Welcome to Valdina's Talk. Today, I have a special guest and a friend, Tracy Schuchart. She has been already a guest during the first season of my uh, digital talk, and uh, there is no better time for this conversation on global energy transition, and there is no better guest than her um, for addressing these issues. Tracy Schuchart manages an energy and materials portfolio for a family office, and she's also the energy and materials strategist at Hedge Fund Telemetry. As, as you can guess, we are going to discuss uh, anything important related to global energy transition in the next hour. It's a live stream, so you can also uh, post your questions in the YouTube chat, uh, channel. And uh, this conversation is possible due to the cooperation with Bharatvarta, uh, which is one of uh, India's most uh, uh, important and uh, biggest uh, podcast producers on uh, policy and society. Welcome, Tracy. Well, thank you for having me again. <laughs> yes, and um, before we start with the first question, um, it is uh, obviously a quite of an exciting time. We uh, are living right now. Uh, an energy crisis uh, is uh, basically affecting almost every part of the global right now, uh, marked by record high energy prices, also tight supplies and even power blackouts. Um, even here in Austria, in small, beautiful Austria, an island of the blast uh, scenario on blackouts has been published for the next three to five years. So some of the world's richest countries uh, and of course, uh, United States, uh, specifically some of the states within the United States, such as California, have been struggle struggling already to keep their electricity systems stable. And here in Europe, we are experiencing a sharp surge of gas prices, electricity prices, in a sense, um, there is uh, this feeling of, uh, of um, urgency right now. So I would like you to first and foremost address uh, this issue, is it uh, transitionary, the most favorite word uh, by politicians and <laughs> economists right now? Is it a transitionary phenomenon? Is this uh, crisis uh, here to stay? Is going to stay here for a longer period? What are the main drivers? What are the main triggers? Uh, and of course, what is your anticipation for the drivers of change? beyond 2021 when it comes to the global energy supply and demand? Well, I think um, for right now, no, this is not um, transitory, right? This, right? this second, this probably will be uh, ongoing because you do have several countries coming out. They're already projecting um, energy problems within the future. And, you know, this, this starts... Um, this starts actually, you know, years ago. Uh, but before we gonna get into that, I kind of want to talk about some of the the main drivers for change in 2021. Um, I think there's like five main drivers that we're looking at right now. Um, first was the longer term effects of COVID-19, um, which seems much less impactful, and we're recovering much faster. This is part of the problem: is that we weren't completely prepared for this. Um, so that, that's one of the main issues. Uh, second is power generation and power sources. Obviously, uh, we're having an energy crunch. So uh, we're trying to balance transition with traditional uh, fossil fuels. But the problem is what we're seeing is, is that, you know, you can't have wind and solar really as your base load because it's intermittent power. Um, so really that's what's going to be the main focus is power generation and what power sources are we going to use um, moving forward. Um, then we also have economic forces, um, which are the investment flows. We, we have been severely lacking investment in, in fossil fuels um, without um, having the technology up to par of renewables to make this transition smooth. Um, then we also have political forces. Obviously, we have this push for the new green agenda. 
Um, and then uh, geographical forces uh, where, you know, we're trying to have a one size fits all approach that's just not working um, across the globe. So those are the main areas of focus um, that I think that that's going to be, you know, 2021 um, and then and most of those and beyond. So to translate it for uh, the the. the, the those among the audience who are not energy experts, uh, we should expect uh, um, this kind of higher energy bills for at least uh, the next 12 to 18 months, I suppose, or even longer in uh, particular parts of the world which have been already witnessing uh, the surge, right? I mean, because this is definitely not uh, uh, short-term uh, energy crisis because of those five, those five uh, groups of uh, drivers that you've actually outlined. Exactly. So, you know, right now we're just looking at, uh, honestly, just too few resources coupled with too much demand and trying to transition too fast without proper infrastructure in place. Um, and that's really, you know, the, 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 that's rattling the energy world in Europe and Asia. And, you know, we'll probably see a contagion um, beyond. And, you know, it's showing us right now really the importance of ener energy security and the risk of giving up fossil fuels before alternatives are ready to pick up the slack. Well, one major part of the narrative right now here on that part of uh, the Atlantic, on that side of the Atlantic, is actually that the crisis should be tackled by increasing the share of renewables in the energy portfolio, which actually is contradiction uh, contradiction in itself because it would not uh, be possible in such a short uh, period of time. Or do I see it wrong in a wrong? No, way? that's correct. It's just we don't have. There's not. There's just not enough time because the technology just isn't there yet, right? To um, make renewables um, for the masses, right? And and for and commercially viable because we're finding out what you know. We take UK for example. You know what happens when you know the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine then you have intermittent power sources and we saw that we saw this in texas we see we're seeing this in california as well i mean uk's i'm not singling out uk we're seeing this other places as yeah. well um uh, so I, we're finding out that having intermittent power sources you need to have something as a base load right and they're trying to phase out projects too quickly and shutting every all the fossil fuel uh, production down, you know, or most of it, and completely shunning it without this technology um, up to par, and without the foresight of being able to blend these energies together so that you do have a stable uh, power flow and power source to, um, you know, power your country or state. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's correct. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the major reasons uh, for the energy crisis in the UK was also indeed due to weak uh, wind activities and due to the increased uh, share of uh, actually uh, that uh, specific uh, energy source. So in a sense, um, it is a kind of an unanticipated an, an uh, effect from uh, an accelerated energy transition. Could Absolutely. we see it that way? But the other side of the coin, of course, is also um, the question um, that I think is directly related to this, uh, um, to the greening of uh, the economies, uh, specifically in the, in the richest uh, economies, because more or less currently it is about the G7 countries, it is more or less about the richest economies, which are on its pet on this pathway towards decarbonization because uh, countries uh, such as uh, China or India many asian countries in fact uh, would not be able to decarbonize decarbonize um, in the next 10 or 20 years unless you see it probably in a different way of course you can address this but the other side of the coin is are we going to witness also um deindustrialization in the richest economies because of the fact that the green 
transition, economy transition is going too uh, too fast, and in a sense, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of um, uh, industries will not uh, be able to cope with uh, cope with it. So basically, we are going to witness industries, uh, companies uh, going bust, industries tackling the. Um, the 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 energy crisis in, in a sense uh, is it uh, a beginning of a kind of a deindustrialization phase uh, in the developed yeah world? I, I think so I, I mean well here's the conundrum right so we had covid right and we realized that you know all of our supply chains were in a couple of nations <laughs> and <clears throat> that caused you know a, a supply crisis across um, across the world. And so after that, so our lessons from that was, okay, let's bring supply chains home. Okay, that's great. Except for now we run into the problem where nobody wants industrial production in their backyard, right? Because that requires a lot of fossil fuels and that require, you know, that's, um, you know, heavily polluting. Um, uh, and even if you want to talk about, you know, uh, we need a ton of uh, metals and, and minerals to make to even make these renewable resources like windmills and solar panels and whatnot. Um, and then that requires mining, which is really dirty, and nobody wants that in their their backyard. <laughs> um, so we're it's going to have to they're going to have to find some sort of balance between you know, bringing in our, you know, do you want to bring supply chains closer to home so that we don't have this, this problem, we don't have everything just concentrated, say, in, in Asia, right, and where we're having a chip shortage, and, and things like that, and we need to bring, you know, bring uh, industry elsewhere. Um, but then at the same time, you're going to have to deal with the sort of the dirty part of of that industry, just because the technology isn't there to completely rely on renewables for these manufacturing processes. Exactly. And speaking of world mining, as you said, a very important uh, actually factor for the success of uh, of uh, the green energy transition, and specifically when it comes to um, to the use of uh, electric cars in the future. Um, of course, uh, the trend is very clear that uh, the most of uh, the world mining takes place uh, in parts of the world, such as Latin America or uh, Africa, for instance, South Africa, Zambia, uh, Congo, but definitely not in Europe. I mean, Europe has the least share and uh, USA as well. So you see how this uh, actually makes uh, rich countries once again being dependent on uh, on very important factors in the whole uh, in the whole cycle but of course i would like to also put the focus on fossil fuels um, and specifically i would like to ask you um, what uh, your anticipation is regarding the trends uh, in uh, this uh, sector, what is in your view the most likely scenario for uh, oil demand uh, and supply by uh, 2030? So let's take a short-term scenario. Now, I mean, one being beyond uh, COVID-19 crisis, at least for the next uh, year, and then moving towards 2030. Is the world really going to decarbonize as we are being told? or maybe only part of it? And uh, what about the rest of the world? Where do you see actually an increase of uh, oil uh, supply in the world? Um, I would stop here and I have four more questions regarding fossil fuels, of uh, course. Okay, well, in the short term, right? So over the you know, next year or so, um, you know, we're probably gonna see more of the same where we're gonna see increased fossil fuels. I mean, fossil fuels growth is supposed to increase out to 2030. But over the next year, what we're seeing is because we have these um, high energy prices, you know, in say natural gas, then we're seeing this, you know, this um, gas to coal switching, gas to oil switching, right? Because <clears throat> they're a little bit more expensive, a little less expensive, but now those are running up as well. Um, so the short term, uh, you know, I, we have a lot to sort out. I just don't see energy prices over the next year falling by any 
you know, huge significant degree. Um, if we look over, you know, the next 10 years, um, I mean, fossil fuel growth is, you know, you're going to see, you know, three quarters of um, the expected fossil fuel growth comes from Asia specifically, um, Asia, Asia Pacific. So we're going to see a lot of growth out of there. I mean, where India is expected to double over, you know, the next, um, <clears throat> Over the next five years, uh, we're you know going to see growth out of China. China actually just changed their five-year plan very quietly um, to add more coal, um, and it you know they said to uh, vigorously pursue clean coal was the wording that they added in their five-year plan, but they didn't really tell anybody about that. So we know that they're um, they're increasing um, you know their coal consumption and going after it over the next five years. Um, and Russia, as we know, you know, they're busy in the Arctic and they certainly have no plans of um, moving from, you know, that area. They're, you know, one of the largest gas and oil producers in the whole world. Um, so, um, you know, that demand is gonna, going to keep growing whether or not, you know, no matter what the West decides to do. Um, and that's where you kind of run into the problem with these climate goals, right? It's because, um, you know, nobody wants to spend 15% of their GDP um, for a 2% problem. So, you know, there are scenarios saying that even if um, the entire Western world, rich countries cut their CO2 tomorrow and didn't have any CO2 emissions for um, the rest of the century, then you're only going to reduce uh, temperatures by 2100 by 0 0.8 degrees. Um, and that's way off the mark of the, you know, 1.5 that they're looking for. Um, so that's just also something to consider when we're looking at these goals. And, you know, I think that what we're going to find at, you know, COP26, we're already seeing some of these countries sort of backtrack on a lot of things because of this current energy crisis. Yes, as you can, uh, as you have uh, pointed out to the Asian giants, uh... China and India are energy hungry. They are not going to scale back. Uh, India is uh, being on en route to becoming a third major power in this or next decade. I can hardly imagine that they would actually um, decide to decarbonize uh, in this particular phase of their economic developments. Right when they actually want to catch up with China, they are in a direct conflict with, uh, with, uh, with China and they need to speed up uh, manufacturing and to actually uh, you know, produce more. In a sense, it's not only about the oil, but also about the use of petrochemicals, right? So it's another side of the coin that we are used to so many products that are actually derived from oil. In a sense, decarbonization does not mean only... <laughs> only exiting from oil. So in a sense, do you see also a positive trend uh, in all the, um, you know, petrochemicals, all the oil-related uh, um, uh, products, because this is, uh, of course, also important uh, for uh, the future? Right. Well, I, I, exactly. So, you know, and I think we talked about this a little bit. Um, I kind of wanted to get into that gas a little bit because we we kind of talked about this last time um, that we, ha we had a conversation together. But, you know, I think that natural gas is, you know, I, I stressed this before, it's a great transition fuel. I think that it's going to be huge in the global energy portfolio. Um, and, um, you know, especially in emerging markets where they just don't have, you know, the trillion dollar funding for, for green projects, right? They need cheap, reliable energy sources so they can, you know, catch, catch, catch up, right? So I think, you know, that's really uh, something that we should be looking at. And, you know, we even had the EU and their green plan 
they earlier this year decided no natural gas can't be in the energy portfolio and then they backtracked on that and said okay we're going to include natural gas so i think that's really only uh, expected to grow um the biggest growth areas expected from 2020 to 20 45 are Asia, which is 99%, Africa, 147% growth, and Latin America, 119% growth is what's expected. Um, so with those kind of numbers up out to 2045, you know, fossil fuels just aren't going away. <laughs> yes, and by the way, this is also verified and confirmed by all kind of energy macro outlooks uh, that are being published by all relevant international organizations. It's not just a personal assessment, even OPEC. I mean, all of these kind of outlooks that are being produced uh, each year and include also scenarios for 2030, 2040, 2050. There is no a single scenario that actually makes the case for um, net zero or transition or a complete decarbonization. Uh, and as you say, uh, natural gas will be this kind of uh, um, transi transitionary <laughs> energy, energy re resource while moving away from, uh, from oil. Uh, do you see the same case, uh, same scenario for liquefied natural gas? Do you include also LNG in yes. that matrix? Uh, so it goes for both natural gas and LNG. Yes, absolutely. And, um, and, and any, any of the liquids, you know, pro propane, um, you know, cooking gas, th things of that nature. So NGLs, um, I would include in, in that bunch as well. Mm -hmm. Do you uh, see any kind of uh, um, basically new uh, natural gas or LNG uh, reserves that can be uh, explored in the near future? So basically new uh, actors on the market uh, unexpectedly arriving, arriving, so to say, <clears throat> among the, the old uh, horses, uh, <laughs> foil and gas. Uh, do you see any kind of new uh, yeah, I mean, I think, constellations? Uh, well, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, I well, you know, you have, you know, if, if you have Qatar, which is already big, but they're aggressive. They have the most aggressive plan ever laid out, um, you know, over the next two decades. They want to increase their gas uh, production by 50 percent, which is huge. So, you know, that's kind of the old guard. Um, and then now, you know, what's really interesting is, you know, this Eastern Mediterranean block, right? Um, so you have Israel on the market now. Um, and then you're, you know, you're also seeing Egypt starting to auction off blocks. Um, you just had Egypt, Greece, and Cyprus sign a deal to link power grids. Um, Egypt has a deal already um, in place with Sudan, Libya, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. That's our sorry, next in next in their pipeline. Um, and then other places where we're finding uh, you know, new players are Guyana, Tanzania, Egypt, uh, Nambia, Mozambique, Brazil just found um, a, a big reserve of natural gas. Um, again, Israel, and then um, Russia in the Arctic. So um, there are a lot of sort of reserves that are being discovered and, uh, and sort of sought after right now. Yeah, so we're definitely moving from the age of scarcity, scarcity uh, towards the age of uh, abundance, uh, specifically when it comes to, to, to natural gas and uh, LNG. And we discussed this last year. Now it's even more relevant than ever. I think, I mean, amid uh, this energy crisis is that uh, uh, one, one can only be bullish on uh, actually on uh, natural gas and uh, on LNG. And even, uh, even uh, Pakistan is now actually in talks with Russia for a gas pipeline. I mean, just to give you an right. idea how <laughs> diversified the world has become. Uh, if, you re if you're reading in the news why Pakistan is suddenly such an important regional actor, well, there, this is not a coincidence. There is always a kind of energy calculation behind it or a kind of a energy relationship that uh, is being in the making and in this particular case this is 
basically a new kind of relationship where Russia is becoming increasingly also an energy supplier in a in a region which is a new terrain, right? So in a sense, uh, this is uh, definitely a trend that is here to stay. Um, it is also very interesting, specifically in Europe. I would like to hear your opinion on that matter. Uh, when it comes to gas, uh, there is a clear uh, dependence, uh, which has been now in even uh, further increased uh, by, or basically dependence on one supplier, gas supplier, and that is Russia. And just yesterday, uh, the Russian president uh, announced that Russia could deliver 10% more gas to Europe, uh, basically to Germany, if Nord Stream 2, which is a new uh, pipeline, uh, is approved by Germany. <laughs> so given that the search of uh, energy bills uh, in energy bills is uh, quite high on the agenda at the current uh, summit of uh, the European Union uh, member states. Uh, the timing is, of course, not coincidental. Uh, right. The message is absolutely clear. Uh, so far, uh, the expectation was that uh, energy is not, uh, you know, is not geopolitics, uh, at least in the uh, in the capitals of the member states. But how do you? Uh, what is your reading on that uh, kind of? Um, uh, development where there is obviously the case that now Russia is trying to actually use uh, energy as a geopolitical weapon. Uh, the gas reserves are more or less uh, uh, empty. So in a sense, uh, um, Gazprom wasn't delivering, you know, uh, in, the, in the previous months, uh, knowing that the uh, political leaders will be put under pressure by their citizens what is your reading? Is it well, where is the, exactly the truth in this uh, kind of uh, the thing? Yeah, the thing with the Nord Stream two. I mean, Russia's own supplies were were depleted, and Russia is always going to take care of Russia first. So you know, uh, the last couple months they were um, refilling, you know, their uh, their stocks that needed to. The interesting thing is that they said that they were done, and then. For next month, they're still not increasing supplies to Europe, even though that they said that it would be possible exactly. and they wouldn't be able to, you know, and then you kind of have to bring Poland into this whole issue because Poland is absolutely against Nord Stream 2, right? And so, um, you know, the, it, it's a big, you know, it, it's a big political problem, not just between, say, Russia and Germany, um, but, you know, uh, Russia and Poland, a lot of EU member states, and approving this um, Nord Stream 2 not only takes Germany to approve it, but then it needs to go to the EU for approval, right? So, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of red tape there. <laughs> Yes, oh, but interestingly, this is not a European Union issue. The European Union was right. clear on the matter that, in fact, it will threaten the it will threaten the the, right. the energy security, um, the European energy security by increasing the dependence on one energy supplier. And as you noted, in fact, uh, you could uh, diversify. You named, for instance, uh, Qatar, um, right. I uh, mean, Qatari LNG, right? And Turkey is a perfect example for a smart regional actor in that specific uh, domain because they have diversified they have they have of course uh, energy supplies from russia but uh, they also receive uh, lng from qatar so they have basically a diversified uh, energy portfolio from three four different sources and in a sense you cannot be blackmailed by one single uh, energy supplier yeah and i mean you can also get gas from israel through tap up through greece right so um you know there are a lot of uh, regional players there that the EU could reach out to, um, <clears throat> but the focus right now is obviously on on Russia. Yes, and, and since you <laughs> mentioned, of course, Poland. Yes, Poland is probably the rebel, uh, right? the small rebel in the European Union family, yes. which has, in fact, sought to diversify via American LNG. So they have uh, now the opportunity also to receive American LNG. Uh, and in a sense, um, this is uh, one way how to actually uh, how to actually do it, because then you have much more space to uh, maneuver and to not get blackmailed. But right. do you think that um, 
Of course, uh, United States is a completely different story. We discussed this also last uh, year. Uh, United States is meanwhile in the situation that they can also export uh, energy. So they are not, not really uh, dependent uh, to this kind of great extent on right. energy supplies as it was in the past, uh, which is why also their focus have uh, has been shifting away from the Middle East, right? This is not uh, coincidental that uh, now the focus is being put to other regions, specifically Indo-Pacific. Do you think that uh, Europe, uh, Europe's energy crisis uh, is a preview of uh, a up, an upcoming America's crisis, energy crisis? Well, you know, I think that depends on, you know, so far the energy policy is not as aggressive in the United States as it is in Europe towards energy transition, right? Because it kind of operates on uh, a different level, right? Not because uh, we... We have, you know, oil lobbyists. We have, um, we don't have, you know, uh, a national oil company per se, um, right? So, um, United States kind of operates on a completely different level. Um, I think, you know, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I think we'll see intermittent problems, right? Just like we saw in Texas and we're seeing in California. So we'll probably see problems in states that um, get too aggressive, not that Texas is too aggressive, that was a completely different issue. Um, uh, but you know, some, some of these more progressive states might start to have issues. So I think really, instead of being really a national problem, I think we're going to see it more of a localized problem, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, you know, you just, when you're canceling pipelines and, and things like that, like New Jersey wouldn't let the pipeline be built. So, you know, their natural gas prices this winter will probably be sky high. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so that's, it's going to be more, more regionally and locally in the United States. And that's kind of where it differs you know, from, from the EU. Are we going to witness a further cancellation of pipelines? I mean, obviously does the, the, the case with, uh, with the Keystone uh, pipeline was not the smart, the smartest move, right? Right. No. <laughs> maybe the I'm, I maybe in terms of, of timing. Uh, I mean, uh, even right. if uh, they had, uh, even if they had decided to, to do it, maybe the timing was not really, uh, the most fortunate one. Right. So do you think we are going to win or is it going to be a well, local problem, as you said? I mean, sp uh, specific states are going to uh, address the issue in that way and, and other states we are, uh, are going to be more robust in their energy policy, uh, in a sense, trying to be more, uh, to be smarter in terms of how to transition. Yeah, I think it'll be more local. I think, you know, um, I think this administration now, you know, they just came out and said, uh, we have a, a problem moving, uh, you know, oil and gas around the country, <laughs> around North America, right? So um, then stop canceling pipelines. <laughs> um, so hopefully they'll be, they'll address that issue and um, kind of be on the forefront. I mean, I, I hope that they are looking at what's happening in Europe um, and we'll uh, try to avoid that similar situation um, on a national level. Then again, you know, it will be individual states that that are probably going to have you know some issues depending on how progressive they are and uh, pursuing a green agenda without uh, the underlying technology there, right? Because really, um, what it's going to take for all, all of these countries, <laughs> you're going to have to redo the entire grid. But right, so you can't just take new energy, put it on top of an old grid. You know, it's kind of like putting new code on top of old code and expecting your website to run well, right? So really all of these power grids in order to be able to handle this kind of like uh, electric moving over to EVs um, and, and things of this nature and integrating renewables into the power grid, um, we're going to need a complete overhaul because right now the, there's just no way you could um, 
you know, what 50% of your vehicles by, you know, 2035 in the United States to be electric, the power grid would literally fold. Yeah, um, blow off, basically. So, yeah. you know, you know, and then the same thing with UK, they have an aging power, power grid as well. So, and then there, then there lies the secondary problem on that is that nobody wants to spend the money to do that, right? But you've got, so. Um, there is no money for that. I mean, right. uh, if you look at, uh, all the infrastructure plans, right? I mean, this was a problem that was uh, addressed during the Trump's administration. If you remember when he was giving the example of, uh, of uh, China's Belt and Road uh, initiative, uh, which was uh, meant to amount for two to three trillion of uh, US dollars. And then there was the case, why do we not invest in our own infrastructure? Let's have a one trillion infrastructure kind of program for the United States, if I remember correctly. So in a sense, nobody, neither in United States nor in Europe, uh, I mean, the governments have uh, been spending like hell during the last almost two years uh, of uh, COVID-19 crisis. And in a sense, who is going to spend so much money on new infrastructure, as you say, in order to build actually the power grid to prepare the whole necessary networks for, uh, you know, for this transition. And then the transition, I mean, I think the latest figures out on how much this would cost, you know, if this global transition is $150 trillion. $150 trillion for this plan to go to fruition. Nobody has that kind of money right now. <laughs> if where, where, where is the money coming from? I mean, exactly. Where are, you know, can't. <laughs> so this is where we have a problem with these aggressive goals. I mean, if we look at the, all these kind of uh, uh, papers that have been coming out regularly, I mean, they have uh, they have uh, the they hide the potential for some trillions of uh, hidden, right. <laughs> <laughs> which will never be used, of course, as we know. And the other option would be. Uh, to tax uh, the middle class. Uh, working class is more or less has been struggling um, for uh, quite some time and now has been hard hit uh, right. by the COVID-19 crisis. And now the middle class is basically uh, going to somehow cover the or at least a share of the price uh, for this uh, transition uh, by uh, what by witnessing more taxes right? right linked to the green transitioning so in a sense 150 trillion would also mean a new kind of indebtedness because uh, nobody can afford actually this uh, this price Oh, absolutely. And they've done studies in the United States. Um, I think about the Washington Post or somebody uh, did a did a poll. And basically, you know, overwhelmingly people were all for green energy. However, nobody wanted to spend more than $24 a month for it. So there we, you know, there we have a problem. And I, I'm sure that, you know, that's, you know, not just prevalent in the United States. I'm sure if you did a poll, um, you would find the same answers from, you know, sort of the middle classes that we just can't, you know, yes. can't, you know, we, we just don't want to pay, pay for it. So we run into, we run into to problems there as well. Well, on the one side, if we take into consideration the surging uh, energy bills, which will of course, affect families, affect households, but will also affect whom? Uh, small, medium enterprises. Exactly. Which, of course, which, depend uh, on energy bills. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And they've already been hard hit, you know, over... Already. You know, exactly. So, so. Um, you know, it's going to... This, this green, this, you know, COP26 is not... I, you know, I think um, they're, they're going to have a lot of, of problems. I mean, already going into this, um, you know, Zai is not showing up himself. Putin's not showing up himself. He's going to do it remotely. And we're still waiting on, on India to hear if they're going to come. So you can't have the top three uh, energy consumers <laughs> in Asia not be there. Right. And the top three companies that are the top three co countries that we're expected to see the most growth in fossil fuels. Right. So it says it says something very loudly that, you know, um, they're almost absent. 
which also brings me to the point that uh, the for so-called forcing greening of the global economy is not realistic in the short term, definitely right. not by 2030, if at all. And if we are talking about greening of a global economy, we actually mean specific parts of the globe because uh, large parts of the world cannot afford themselves a greening of the global or regional economy cannot afford themselves uh, decarbonization for the moment. Is it is it a kind of a correct uh, wrap up? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So can, for instance, nuclear energy play a bigger role in uh, these uh, considerations, at least for the transitionary period? Just to give you one example, France uh, uh, has launched an alliance with other European countries to push for including nuclear energy as uh, part of the diversification portfolio um, towards the greening of the you know, European economy. Uh, while, for instance, countries such as Germany and Austria are vehemently against uh, nuclear energy. They are um, absolutely 100% against it. So in a sense, I'm already seeing the next uh, big crisis that uh, is going to emerge here within the European Union family. I don't know how it is, uh, how, how the case is uh, in the United States, but do you think that this might be also one way how to diversify? Well, I, absolutely. And I think we're sort of seeing in the short term, Germany just announced that they're delaying the closure of their last nuclear plants. We also saw in the United States, Illinois decided not to close three nuclear plants. Um, what's interesting is we did see the UK just lay out um, a plan for, for nuclear right? And they want to really aggressively add that into their, their power mix. So, you know, we're kind you know, perhaps other countries will kind of look at that model and um, change their mind. I mean, France has always been very pro, pro-nuclear. Um, but yes, I mean, you're always going to have a problem with, say, Austria and Germany. So it depends on how much they sort of push, push back against that. But, um, you know, we're also seeing growth um, you know, not, you know, kind of, kind of a turnaround in the West, right, that, that was put off by, um, put off by nuclear after Fukushima, but we're kind of seeing a turnaround, you know, in Europe and, and the US, and what, you know, we definitely are seeing major growth in, um, you know, in Asia, in India, for example, and um, Bangladesh and China, you know, those are where most of the, the new projects are um, kind of, you know, already um, past the planning stage of the pipeline. Mm hmm so I want to shift uh, your focus on uh, the geopolitics of energy, uh, as I know that you have also background in international relations and political science, so in a sense you have also uh, <laughs> quite of a big interest in uh, geopolitical developments, uh, and they are very often related to energy. So from a geopolitical point of view, uh, the my expectation is that the new great game is uh, going to be predominantly in the situated in the South China Sea and in the Indian Ocean due to the rising competition between uh, China and India. Um, of course, in addition to the systemic rivalry between China and the United States. So my question to you is, are we going to witness also military conflicts or energy-related conflicts in that parts of the world? Or do you have a specific anticipation for other potential um, energy-related conflicts uh, post-2021 when it comes to the geopolitical uh, developments affecting global energy? Well, I don't think that, you know, I don't think we're going to see, say, a military conflict between, you know, China and the United States, um, per se. Um, um, I think you, you have the potential, you know, in the South China Sea or, you know, anywhere around that, that area, you know, I think we'll probably continue to see the same kind of skirmishes that we've been seeing, um, you know, the Philippines, you know, Taiwan. Um, but I think, I don't think that, the, you know, this is going to escalate into, you know, an all out war, at least I, I hope not, but I just don't, um, 
or it escalate into a hot war. Let's let's put it that way. Um, you know, it's already kind of a cold war. Um, you know, then the other area that you know always you need to look at, you know, the, is um, Greece, Cyprus, and Turkey, right? You know, mm-hmm. you you know you have uh, Turkey that just you know bought that S four hundred from. Russia, who wants to buy some more? You had um, Greece just announced they were buying six more Rafaelis from from France. Um, so you know that's an area to watch because they both seem to be gearing up militarily. Do I think that it will end up in a hot war? Probably not, but it's still you know um, an area that is you know definitely worth watching, especially because that area is a gas feed into into Europe. So. Um, kind of definitely, you know, want to watch that. Obviously, Nord Stream 2. Um, and then, you know, um, Poland versus the EU is also a, another very interesting the dynamic. Pole exit, so to say. Pole exit, pole exit, yes. <laughs> <laughs> to be watching, you know, they just stood up to the EU on coal and said, no, we're not getting rid of our coal. And no, we're not paying your fine. Um, they're against Nord Stream 2. So, you know, that's, you know, a very interesting. I don't think that Poland will necessarily leave the EU, but, you know, they are going to be kind of a thorn in the side of this uh, energy transition plan and uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, approval. Oh, absolutely. Maybe then also uh, for those who are not familiar with the South China Sea issue that uh, there, there are uh, definitely disputes that are going to further escalate between China on the one side and Chinese neighbors on the other side. And also in the South China uh, Sea holds about 11 billion barrels of oil and 190 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, according to the US Energy Information Administration. So in a sense, even though that it is uh, being presented as a territorial dispute, I still do think that uh, there is also there are also certain calculations behind it because China, if it is really en route to becoming a kind of a regional center of power, challenging the U.S. dominance in this part of the world, they would definitely need to become more independent in the energy sector, and that would also mean that they would uh, actually strive for their own uh, to, for for control over their own reserves. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, that's what China's been about. I mean, that's what Belt Road Initiative is is about. I mean, they're all about gathering, you know, natural resources, you know, uh, food, energy, um, metals, minerals, et cetera. So, you know, uh, if you kind of look at everything they've done, it's, you know, there's been some sort of, you know, natural resource, agriculture, uh, metals motive behind that. So we should definitely keep an eye on that as well, right? Because right now with uh, the, well, following the takeover, the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan, following the US withdrawal, they probably will be the next run for China to step in, to try to take control over uh, the situation via political channels, but then also probably to explore and exploit uh, as you mentioned, for instance, def, uh, certain copper mines or mineral reserves. Uh, right. I mean, you know, Afghanistan sitting on trillions worth of, uh, of, of minerals and rare earths. So, um, you know, obviously, as soon as the U.S. left, you know, China and Russia kind of quick to swoop in there. <laughs> Yes, definitely. So uh, geopolitics of energy is here to stay as well. We are going to observe, yes, I would agree with you, not the direct military conflict between China and uh, United States, more likely probably be direct uh, direct military conflict, uh, at least uh, with a limited scope uh, in a, terms of uh, skirmishes between China and India. And... Um, I would like to move to to your 
to your personal uh, prognosis and uh, basically uh, your personal assessment uh, regarding the next uh, year. Last year, you gave uh, some really great tips regarding uh, specific uh, uh, companies to look, to pay attention to, to carefully observe. And what, what are your favorites right now when it comes? I'm sure that there will be also people who are uh, either traders or are really following <laughs> commodities, energy stocks because of, uh, you know, a person professional interests. So in a sense, maybe we can give also some, some insights, all of your uh, great insights from last year. I can only confirm. <laughs> I can only confirm that all of them were absolutely spot, <laughs> spot on. <laughs> this is something I can personally confirm because I not only verified, but uh, in a sense, I just followed your advice, and <laughs> it turned to be to be a great, uh, great, uh, really great assessment uh, on the current situation as of 2020. So do we have new favorites or any, you know, special kind of uh, probably hidden tips that? Uh, um, well, yeah, <laughs> I think um, right now, um, you know, uh, you know, last year was, uh, you know, more focused on um, on oil so you know this year exactly. definitely more focused on that natural gas um and you know an lng so you know i would look at you know companies like dalek in um, israel on uh on the tel aviv exchange um cbx cbx chevron is also very active in that area um plus they're an integrated which you know i like um for a bigger player um, in the United States, I like um, Antero Resources. Um, I also um, think that at least right now in that the interim, we have you know we have products that are really strong right now. The crack spreads are very strong right now, um, and refiners are coming off maintenance season. So you know uh, refiners like MPC, VLO, and PSX. Um, I think in you know over the next few months at least will do really really well um so i guess that's kind of kind of what i'm that's more than enough actually <laughs> i remember we really covered more oil last mm -hmm. year but now with the with the really with the shift uh, becoming very obvious uh, uh, towards growing interest in gas uh, natural gas lng that makes perfect sense that you are more focusing also on uh, that particular uh, sector. So given that we are definitely going to meet uh, not late in a year again. <laughs> um, so what do you think is going to be the topic that is definitely uh, more or less going to stay on the agenda for the 2022 talk? Um, Price, so I, energy I, crisis. An <laughs> I energy not. crisis. I think we're going to still be talking about fossil fuels. <laughs> and I think we just because I just don't see. Um, I just don't see the technology advancing that quickly over the next, you know, two three years um, to make a huge change. And so, you know, I think we're going to continue to see sort of um, demand outstrips of supply because really, if you look oil and gas industry has had barely any capital expenditure over the last, you know, seven years and, you know, pro projects other than shale, um, you know, if you're talking deep water or things of that nature, um, those products take eight, uh, those projects take eight to 10 years to, you know, come to fruition from how we discovered oil to we can actually, you know, produce it. Um, countries that, that produce something like shale, you can get those projects uh, off the ground much, much more quickly. The problem is, is that nobody wants to do that <laughs> um, because they're, you know, investors are shying away from the sector. And so in order to entice investors, you know, operators have had to focus on dividends and stock buybacks and uh, making sure they had enough free cash flow to entice investors to kind of stay in the industry. So they've been very apprehensive to, you know, go all out and, you know, start, start producing again. Um, okay, so, you but, know, I, and I don't really see that changing over, you know, over the next year. 
Mm -hmm. But would that mean that inflation is also here to stay because we are being told that inflation is uh, it's transitory, <laughs> transitory, <laughs> but in a sense, given that your ex uh, anticipation is that the energy crisis is here to stay, probably you are going to witness uh, different cycles of it, right. but more or less it's going to be uh, to 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 remain um you know uh well will be long long term right. uh, so in, uh, this of course will affect um this affects uh, other industries too, yes right? exactly so, so, you know like you're talking about you know um we just saw in the uk we had you know we had the secondary effects where fertilizer uh, producers couldn't produce because it was co you know, costing too much money then you have a tertiary effect where meat packers can't get CO2 from the fertilizer companies um, to, to, to pack meat. So, you know, this is going to, we're going to, you know, the energy is basically ever, you know, everything. It's everything. Yes, it you can moves, say it. A lot of everything. people underestimate uh, the it, fact it, it that- It moves everything, right? And so um, if you have higher energy prices, that's going to equate to, you know, higher food prices, higher this price. So I don't really see um, in the short term, I don't really see inflation as, as transitory. It's transitory. So the main official narrative that this is just uh, caused by the higher demand following the, you know, higher consumption because now we are no longer in lockdown situations in most parts of the world is in fact not really um not really the whole representing the whole uh truth uh, in a sense if we remain in a scenario of a long longer lasting energy crisis with uh, surging prices which i also think is going to be the case because you cannot go back words right, right now you cannot <laughs> once you are in the middle of it uh, once you have uh, right. launched uh, because a lot of this uh, is also due to political decisions yeah, uh, by by people who are not energy experts who do not have an right. idea about the energy sector or you know the second order effects that might be caused by uh, certain yeah. uh, certain uh, you know certain shifts uh, or transitions um i see that we are having some questions may i do you have uh, maybe five more minutes uh, okay. yes uh, maybe we can address some of them so there is a question uh, by Giovanni, whom we know, both of you, <laughs> both of us, we know him. So he <laughs> said, he, he asks, uh, can it be said that the real difference between the European Union and China is really that the European Union authorities seem inclined to pay whatever price in monetary and productivity terms to get renewable? So is it really whatever it takes kind of mentality just to introduce for the sake of introducing renewables yes i think that i think that the uh, i think it's you know i think they're very stubborn <laughs> you know and, and that's kind of causing the problem so yes you know you, you know i'd say some of the obstinance like we're gonna get this plan done we don't really care um but still without foresight of you know i mean i it's kind of unreal to me that the, the, the people that made these energy policies had no foresight looking into this. So at whatever cost, we're going to get this done, but now here's the cost, right? And so, and it's, you know, it will be interesting to see if they um, sort of, like I'm very looking forward to COP26 because I think um, what's going to happen is they're going to make a lot of sacrifices on their uh, Green New Deal um, in order to just move forward. And, you know, I think I, I watch, watch the coal, watch what they do about coal, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I think that's going to be a huge issue. Natural gas will be a issue, huge issue. Um, but I think that um, they're definitely not going to get done what they want to get done um, during this meeting. And that I would look for a lot of sacrifices that they mm -hmm. make to their plan. Yeah, for the sake of, uh, you know, sticking to the narrative, because you cannot, once uh, the narrative has been pushed, you cannot uh, go backwards, right? 
uh, politically, I mean, the price will be uh, too high. But um, one interesting thing is actually because you mentioned coal, we didn't talk about coal, but uh, because coal is, of course, no go uh, in all these uh, energy transition plans. But in reality, scenario outlook um, by many of these uh, by many of the relevant international regional organizations include a search in the coal production right. as well right could exactly. you could you confirm i think so, this is going to be interesting for the audience to know that uh, coal is uh, not not going away because many right. uh, specifically many economies cannot afford other sources of uh, exactly. energy i mean specifically you've seen... for manufacturing and for yeah for electricity and whatever yeah, i mean you've seen steep steep declines in the us um, and, you know, some steep declines in um, most European countries, right? But, you know, the world, you know, that's not the case in, uh, you know, that's not the case in Asia, that's not the case in Africa necessarily, it's not the case in um, South America. Mm -hmm. Uh, there is a question about hydrogen. Uh, we didn't talk about hydrogen. And the question is, what are your thoughts on hydrogen, regardless of uh, color and its role in the future energy system? And there is even a second one. I will just read it also regarding uh, green hydrogen. Is it a good bet right now? Uh, why go through battery transition when heavy vehicles and aeroplanes will anyway be transitioning to that? What is your... Uh Okay. Um, I mean, um, I think right now green hydrogen's way too expensive and it's not uh, ready, it's not, it's too expensive to be commercially viable at this juncture. Um, I think when you look at, I think there's opportunities investment wise when you want to start looking at blue hydrogen. And the thing is with blue hydrogen is that um, it's mixed with natural gas and they can uh, flow it through existing pipelines. Right. So um, I think that's I think in the near term, um, that's a lot more viable than than the green hydrogen. And I can confirm that there is a lot of interest by governments in hydrogen, but whether this is going to be translated into concrete political decisions, uh, I cannot say as of now and I don't I mean this is definitely now in this phase of uh, checking and uh, you know costs uh, calculation and so on there is a question on bitcoin should I <laughs> bitcoin okay yes. I don't know if I'm the one to answer this but okay <laughs> I would like to know Tracy's opinion if bitcoin plays a role or will play a role in the current macroeconomic energy chase port. Uh, that means countries leveraging their energy resources for mining, etc. Well, What's I your think, take? What I think is, um, let me skew it to something that I do know about on that. Um, I think really what you're seeing and what you're seeing now is um, what's really interesting is um, using flared gas um, for Bitcoin mining instead of flaring the gas, they're using you know waste natural gas um, for for Bitcoin mining, which I think is, is very interesting. And so um, you know you could look at uh, other technologies such as carbon capture. Can you um, you know can you capture carbon and also use that for uh, Bitcoin mining as a as a power source? Um, so that that's kind of you know where where I find that whole sector um, very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes, and uh, if I'm not wrong, uh, the mining industry, Bitcoin mining industry has moved now to the United States, right? I mean, yes, they, after, after China <laughs> banned mining in, uh, you know, Bitcoin in, uh, in, in China, which was uh, the more or less the oasis <laughs> for Bitcoin mining. Now they moved uh, actually back to the United States. There were some also speculations that they are going to look for places such as Island, uh, I think it was uh, Baltic states or um, Iceland. Uh, I'm not sure anymore, but in a sense, you know, looking also for <laughs> other sources such as renewables, wind, whatever. But uh, definitely, Bitcoin has a major energy issues when it comes to you know pro basically mining, mining it. So in a sense, uh, I don't think this is going to be solved in the future that easily. Uh, there is a comment uh, basically 
pointing to the IMF estimates. Uh, I don't know whether IMF is really the right um, <laughs> the right organization to quote, given that they haven't been really correct with their uh, economic growth outlook. I think. Right in any single year, but okay. IMF estimates the, the global fossil fuels subsidies, direct and indirect uh, at 5.9, so basically almost 6 trillion in 2020. So these are the subs subsidies, right? Direct and indirect. While uh, the International Energy uh, Agency net zero roadmap projects, 5 trillion of energy investments per annual, per year, uh, would be necessary by 2030. So the question is, isn't the, isn't the money just in the wrong places? <laughs> Um, you know, I don't necessarily think that's true. And you're taking um, both of those uh, organizations have have their own agenda. Like IMF ha has their own agenda. Um, IEA um, has an unrealistic agenda as far as the transition. If you actually read their paper, so um, no, I don't think the energy is. I don't think the money's in the wrong places, and I wouldn't necessarily um, sort of count on the figures from either one of those. Um, specifically, yes, IAEA has two, such yeah. positive uh, scenarios, right? right? This is what you mean. Yeah, yeah. No, for those who haven't read the outlook uh, scenarios, they have such a positive uh, outlook for specifically net uh, zero, right? This is what it's you mean. It's unrealistic. Completely. Unrealistic, yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I think that we, I don't want to keep you too long because I know you're very, very busy. You stay with us for more than 60 minutes. And uh, the, the questions that we could not address, we can address, uh, I mean, you can reach out to Tracy. She's available on Twitter. She's very active. She participates in a lot of uh, Twitter space discussions, or you can just reach out to her and send her a message if you want to ask her something. Tracy, thank you very, very much for your uh, insights, your analysis, your assessments. Uh, I will carefully look at all your uh, suggestions <laughs> regarding natural gas and LNG. I will give you, I will give you feedback in a year <laughs> as of <Okay>. now. <laughs> but um, in a sense, uh, I am afraid that we are going to have a similar conversation next year and we are going to be stuck in a kind of a limbo when it comes to energy and specifically, you know, energy crisis around the globe. So in a sense, uh, you're going to be very busy. I'm going to be very busy <laughs> covering the geopolitical side. And I wish you a pleasant uh, weekend. Uh, and uh, and you too. Uh, thank you for tuning in uh, during the live stream. And thank you for listening and watching.